Thank you for downloading the Mental Health Panel Discussion Podcast, brought to you by the University of the West of England. In this podcast, we are joined by Emma Britton, radio broadcaster and presenter, Sylvia Korzak, founder of VoxelHub.org, Rachel Kelly, best-selling writer, public speaker and mental health campaigner, Dr Gary Christopher, ageing well lead for the Psychological Sciences Research Group, UE Bristol, and Dr Jason Arde, Associate Professor in Sociology and Deputy Executive Dean for People and Culture, Durham University. Hello and welcome to this University of the West of England Mental Health Panel Discussion. Today is Uni Mental Health Day and it's a day where the university community comes together to make mental health a university-wide issue, a priority and to create a clear and an ongoing sort of strategy to make sure this is a priority all year round, just not on an awareness day. Uh, The title of our event is Switch It Off. The media, a global pandemic and its impact on us, you and me. And I think as this is such a broad topic, the one word we should really focus on during our discussion is impact because we're talking about the impact of the media of the global pandemic on our mental health my name is emma Britton, and i am the chair for this event and i'm very pleased to be asked to host uh, this panel discussion my background for the last 13 years has been as a broadcaster for the bbc mainly as a local radio presenter for the last five years at BBC Radio Bristol. But for a variety of reasons, but one of which was mental health, I found working in the media had a negative impact on my personal mental health. So I took a conscious decision to adjust my working life and my career and the areas that I worked in to try and improve my mental health. We are two and a half months into that process, and I can honestly say that I have seen an improvement. So this panel discussion is very much a a really important topic to me and to our panellists this evening. We have four panellists joining us, and they'll be introducing themselves shortly. We have Sylvia Corsack, the founder of VoxelHub.org. We have Rachel Kelly, who is a mental health campaigner and an author. Dr. Jason Arde from Durham University and Dr. Gary Christopher from UWE in Bristol. So let's talk through the format of how this event is going to work. So uh, we are going to have our panel discussion and then we will be opening up for your questions and our panel will hopefully be giving you some positive and proactive answers. So you can submit questions throughout the event using the Q&A box. Now, questions are moderated and will be published and then answered once we start the Q&A a little bit later on. Now, you can like a question in the Q&A box and that will boost its profile if you fancy that. You can see all the other submitted questions as well, but you will need to be viewing the event in a standard window rather than full screen in order to see the questions. We would love you to get involved with Uni Mental Health Day using the hashtag Uni Mental Health Day on Twitter. 
and please do leave your comments and let us know perhaps your tips for um, how you manage your mental health with regards to the media and we would love to um, read your tweets and many of our guests at the event are keen users of social media. Now this event is being recorded and subject to any technical difficulties uh, will be available online in the next few days. So let's get started. I'm really looking forward to this. This is such an important topic and I'm hoping that at the end of the event, each and every one of you will have something to take away that can have a positive impact on your personal mental health. Time to meet our panelists. First up, Sylvia Corsack, founder of voxelhub.org. Sylvia. Introduction and thank you for having me. My name is Sylvia Corsack, pronounce her she. I'm the founder of voxelhub.org. I offer digital wellbeing consultancy, coaching and counselling. And that means essentially that I translate the findings from digital wellbeing and cyber psychology into very practical client support, which means I help people improve their well-being in digital age, where it's very difficult sometimes to switch off. I help individuals and organizations build sustainable, very human-centered digital strategies. And I also personally feel very passionate about the rights of young people, including students, and other very underprivileged groups when it comes to their online presence. I am very passionate and I promote explorative and very critical view on how we define and how we celebrate humanity in the digital age. So I'm very excited about tonight's discussion and thank you so much for having me. Sylvia, thank you very much. Our next panellist is Rachel Kelly, who is a mental health campaigner and author. Rachel. Hi, thank you, Emma. Um, I'm a bit like you in some ways. I was a journalist. I worked at the Times newspaper for 11 years in the newsroom. Um, I too found that the stress of that job uh, was delirious for my mental health. And a bit like you, I moved on. Uh, I did suffer two major depressive episodes on the way. and. In some ways, this has led to my new life, which is working alongside mental health charities. I'm an ambassador for SANE and Rethink Mental Illness. And I'm really interested in what does mean, what does good mental health mean and how can we attain it? And I'm on my sixth book now of strategies that lead to being calm and well, which is I think I now feel myself to be calm and well. And I share my journey of how I've got there with a lot of help from a lot of experts and share their, their thoughts too. So I'm delighted to be on board tonight. And I'm also a mum. And I have student children and I am personally concerned as well about them. So it's lovely to be on board. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel, for being with us for this event. Um, don't forget the hashtag is Uni Mental Health Day. Took a look at the hashtag on Twitter today and so much, so many great tips and information is being shared many of which from personal experience of students and the wider community as well. So it's well worth taking a look after the event. Our next panellist is Dr. Gary Christopher from UE in Bristol. Gary. Hi. Um, yes, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Um, so I'm the Ageing Well Lead for Psychology at UE. I'm also co-director of the Dementia Health Integration Team in Bristol. 
and I sit on the National Executive Committee of the British Society of Gerontology. So in terms of my research, it's mainly focused on mood and cognition, and I have a couple more books coming out soon, um, one on depression and one on dementia. Now, there's been a considerable amount really written about how we deal with the emotional material and how it, how it impacts on our mental well-being. So our mood really determines you know, what we attend to and how we remember it. And it also determines how we react to it as well. You know, do we believe it? Is it from a trusted source? All of these things we, we, no doubt we'll be talking about this evening. You know, does the material you read resonate with how you think? Is it a different perspective? How do you feel about that? So it's, you know, how do we feel? Do we feel threatened in such situations? So the important thing is we obtain most of our information from one form of media or another, you know, whether it's newspapers, Twitter feeds, and so on. And sometimes you also have to keep in mind the, the intentions of the author, um, because they're not always evident. Um, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Uh, but that will affect the message that's being portrayed. So really, I'm looking forward to the discussion uh, this evening around the current pandemic, because it really, you know, it's no other time have we ever faced such an existential threat. And it you know, we're constantly being bombarded by, uh, if you like, reminders of our own mortality. And there's ways that the, the mind does help protect us from these types of threats. So again, no doubt we'll be talking about some of these things um, as the evening progresses. Thank you so much, Gary. It's great to have you with us. Our fourth panellist is Dr. Jason Arde from Durham University. Jason, welcome. Hi, good evening everyone. I hope you're all keeping well. Um, my name is Jason. I am the Deputy Executive Dean for People and Culture at Durham University and an Associate Professor in Sociology in the Department of Sociology. And a lot of my work has focused on Black and minority ethnic um, experiences of mental um, wellness and altered mental state, particularly in higher education and uh, mainstream education and really differential outcomes. And as part of my work, Having researched a lot in that area, um, I sit on the um, NHS Race and Health um, Observatory Academic Group, um, which um, is a collective of um, academics and mental health practitioners um, that have done work around ethnic minority mental health. So I feel very fortunate to be here this evening and really looking forward to learning from everyone and hearing what everyone has to say. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. So there you have it, our four panellists for our discussion. Remember, the title of our discussion this evening is Switch It Off, uh, the media, a global pandemic and its impact on us. Please do use the hashtag UniMentalHealthDay if you're tweeting about the event and you can leave your questions in the question box and we'll have a Q&A session a little bit later on. Thank you for being here with us for this event. So let's start our discussion, shall we? It is a very broad topic, but between us, we're going to try and cover as much as we can and impart as much, you know, information and perhaps, you know, some tips for sharing as we each of us can for you uh, during the event. So our first question is, how has the evolving digital landscape over the past five years changed how we receive and process information? Sylvia. It is, thank you. It is, it is a very broad question. So 
before we look at media, let's just remind ourselves just how much really has happened in the world of innovation and how we now process the information from very multiple sources. So, you know, we now have smart devices, we have our watches, we have notifications, we've got smart homes, cities even. We start to think about self-driving cars, nanotechnology and recently space exploration. We, we do have conversation about 5G, but we already developed 6G. We use augmented reality to play Pokemon Go. We use virtual reality to deliver therapy here in Bristol as well at Off The Record, for example. We start to talk about mixed reality. We definitely have made huge leaps in the last five years in areas that are already quite accepted in common language, like artificial intelligence, robotics, big data. We have certainly, starting from last year, obviously, developed huge leaps in digital transformation of how we operate as organizations and businesses and how we work remotely and how we connect online. We even start talking about concepts that for some of us might sound scary, like connection between our brain and internet directly, the neural links. We, we at the same time, have developed a lot of tools that help us manage our digital well-being. So we have digital health and digital well-being as industry finally starting up and growing. We have devices, we have major tech providers like Apple and Google providing digital well-being solutions and and tracking so we can we can track the amount of time we spend in certain applications and so on. However, what we talk about today as well, we have more and more developed solutions for fake news, misinformation, deep fakes in form of in forms of videos. So I would say that generally all those technologies are developing very quickly. However, at the same time, our general awareness of those technologies is growing as well. So in the last two, three years, especially, we have seen a very smart use of misinformation and we have all seen impact of, of that in real life in political systems in many countries across the globe. But we also have seen increase in general awareness around algorithms and how we process information, how we access information, what eco chambers, chambers mean. The, the concept of fake news entered the English dictionary in 2019. So we started to take those topics really seriously and explore them in more detail. We have increased awareness of access to information online and accessibility of information for line online for those communities that might struggle or have certain barriers for it. We definitely have seen a huge shift, and I would say not just in technology, but in mental health world as well, moving away from our default, very important human negative bias towards more balanced discussions. I think two, three years ago, we started the World Mental Health, the, the National Mental Health Day started being a little bit more balanced which also means that we're starting to explore the impact of processing information that we access online in less binary way. We no longer see the distinction between online and offline. We know that our experience of how we process information online is very fluid. You know, we in mental health, we talk about continuing bonds. We continue relationships, whether we actively talk to somebody online or not, we still think about them. So they still take up our headspace. The, very, the, the, the boundaries are very blurred at the moment. So what that means is that 
we also start to reevaluate the science around digital well-being, the science around the impact of mental health, digital technologies on mental health. We know now since about two years that screens are actually not harmful. We know that excessive use of screen is harmful. We know that young people suffer less on social media than we used to think. What happens is a lot of studies that were conducted in the past were quite biased and were asking very binary questions. What we're starting to see, especially since the general awareness has increased last year, we're starting to see multiple perspectives. We're, we're starting to ask really important questions. Who, who is vulnerable online? Is it everybody or, or in, you know, as we've heard a minute ago, you know, what, what is happening when we process the, this information? What state are we in when we feel vulnerable, when we access the information online? And recently, what I would add as the last point, especially, well, even yesterday, Google have announced that they will be cutting down on tracking in advertising online. So we also see increase in the last 12 months, I would say, in regulation of online spaces, which is something we all in technology world, we're really looking forward to. We're now finally see regulators and specialists and professionals looking at how can we create spaces online that are predominantly safe for vulnerable people and other communities that might be more resilient then might have to give up on certain options or technical aspects of tracking that or advertising that are simply not keeping us safe. So what I would say generally, there is a huge leap in innovation, huge growth in the landscapes and technologies, general awareness is growing and the conversations are moving from binary and negative towards very nuanced. And we know what we do know is that communities that are vulnerable might possibly suffer a little bit more online and people who are resilient equally find a way to stay resilient online as well. Sylvia, thank you. There's so much there. And, and I know you are a huge advocate for, you know, the positive impact of, of being online on our mental health. And, and that's a really important point to make that although this event is called Switch It Off, let's stop for a moment and think about how many people during the pandemic have been able to remain connected virtually, which had we not had that online platform how would we have kept in touch with our friends and our loved ones and been able to work and study if we didn't have this technology? So it's really important to remember that when we talk about mental health, and, and Sylvia really is a passionate advocate for this, it isn't just negative um, and, and it is developing all the time and changing. And as human beings and as people, we need to be open-minded to that development and that change as well. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank you. Our next question, um, Rachel, I'm going to come to you. What role would you say that the media has played in the pandemic? Um, well, obviously, it's been most people's main source of news about what's going on. Um, I think that for most of the workshops that I've been running, um, and they have been online with my mental health charities, I think, generally speaking, people have found that uh, too much media through the pandemic hasn't helped their mental health. And as a general rule, uh, when we're thinking of strategies for good mental health, uh, most of the people that I'm working with, so they are suffering from anxiety and depression, 
they have found that actually it's best to reduce the amount of news that they see. Um, I think there's lot there's lots of reasons for this, but um, I think that for, for it's very hard for most of us to actually properly analyse the statistics and what the numbers actually mean. And the way that uh, the coverage, the media coverage of, of the pandemic is, is no, no, no different to normal media coverage in that it appeals to our emotions first. So there's a strong uh, sense of fear. There's a strong sense of panic. Um, it feels very intimate, very close to us that, you know, we're going to die and the death is happening literally around the corner. And it's very hard for us if we're not epidemiologists or have a good sense of statistics to actually understand what it really means for us and what the numbers really mean. So as a general rule, um, as far as I'm concerned, uh, working with people who who are finding life difficult, um, the best best advice has been to reduce their their consumption of the media through the pandemic. Um, Would would you say, Rachel, that Obviously, the media does have a role to play in in terms of a global crisis in imparting information. So how important is it that people take their information from credible sources? And how do you know what is a credible source? Yeah, I mean, you make a good point. Yes, of course, you know, and and there are ways of of checking out credible sources and, you know, who's put the information out and, you know, you know, checking the date on when their information and checking the research behind it and, and, and things like that. But I, but I think actually the, the, the problem for a lot of people is that there's one argument that we should know what's going on. And I, and I totally get that. But beyond the basic uh, health guidelines of what we should be doing and keeping our social distance and washing our hands and everything, I think the problem for most people is there's very little we can do uh, about the news. Um, yes, we can maybe volunteer. And that was incredible good moment when, you know, 750,000 people came forward to volunteer for the NHS. But on the whole, there's not a whole lot that we can do. So I'm not sure to what extent uh, knowing every last detail about exactly the numbers on the pandemic and the numbers of deaths and the numbers in IC units, uh, because we we feel powerless in the face of that information, it can actually impact us negatively because it, it kind of increases our sense of a lack of agency, a lack of empowerment. So I think that's a, uh, you know, you make a good point. Yes, we do need to know go what's going on. We need it from credible sources, but consume it in moderation. Yeah, I'm very aware. Lots of people in my life have reduced the amount that they consume when it comes to the news, choosing to just listen to one news bulletin a day or wait until the end of the day. Somebody said to me the other day, well, I'll listen in the morning, but by the afternoon it's changed. So that's a, right. a, a really good piece of advice. And I think whether we'll have a chance to talk about this at some point during the event, but hopefully trying to get people to be mindful and aware of the difference between information, misinformation and disinformation. And very, very simply, I I put information as facts, misinformation as false, sometimes not intentionally false, but just, oh, yeah, my friend Beryl shared that. I'm going to share that with my friends. I don't know if it's true or not, but I'm sharing it just in case. And then disinformation, which is where somebody purposely sets out to mislead you, to create fear um, and to basically play on your emotions. And it's really worth stopping to think about that when we consume some of the content that we do um, from the media. Okay, our next question. So, Jason, um, Jason, I wanted to ask, how does the media influence response behaviour across ethnically diverse communities in the UK? I know that's an area that you're really passionate about. Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. I mean, 
what's become really interesting about how ethnic minorities have been positioned throughout the pandemic um that there's almost been a really interesting way in which um individuals from this diaspora have been positioned as kind of you know at first there was this narrative within the media that you know it wasn't a race issue and covid doesn't racially discriminate but there are actually structural inequalities aligned to institutional racisms that mean that black and ethnic minority people have been more at risk so for example when we look at the um you know proportion of black and ethnic minority frontline workers and how exposed to risk they are when we look at kind of inequitable structures around welfare and housing and how they have been significantly disadvantaged during this pandemic i think it has been interesting the kind of lack of um introspection from the media in presenting this so even when we think about the vaccine for example there's this idea that black and ethnic minority individuals are reluctant to engage with the vaccine process when actually the other side of that argument which is a more prevalent argument is that you know as black and ethnic minority are more um dispositioned um to gaining covid and there are more kind of spikes in death rates um etc um what are some of the long-term consequences and effects of the vaccine as an example and more importantly um, because black and ethnic minority people have um, poorer health outcomes through in many respects an inequitable um, health care system what would be the consequences for people engaging um, in that process now this is not to advertise that people shouldn't be getting the vaccine but it's to advertise that actually how the media has um neutralize those arguments and not been responsible in recognizing um the balance in those arguments and really kind of building a rhetoric that um really uh silences um the opinions of black and ethnic minority people with regards to this context has been problematic so i think you know there was a fantastic documentary um on bbc one two days ago uh, by david harewood and it was titled uh, why is covid killing more people of color or something to that effect and really you know a, a lot of, a, a huge portion of the program really focused on how the media represent uh, black and ethnic minority people generally speaking in relation to this and when we kind of align this back to mental health um, again it's the positioning of what kinds of mental health outcomes because gen intergenerationally there has been a huge distrust of um you know the media mental health services because of how they represent black and ethnic minority people and obviously subsequently you know a byproduct of institutional racism is on mental health and the psychological trauma that individuals encounter every day and how that is kind of perpetuated and kind of crystallized in the media um is impactful on kind of black and ethnic minority more importantly life expectancy and that's one of the kind of themes that drew out from this uh program that you know black people were eight were likely to live eight years less than their white counterparts because of how because of how they navigate racism because of the idea of the psychological stress and trauma that aligns with that that could potentially bring on other illnesses or shorten life expectancy
So, Jason, if you could, if you could sit down with the heads of our biggest media operators, and obviously media is a very broad umbrella, but I'm thinking here of sort of you know newspapers, TV, radio. Um, if you could sit down with the people right at the very top, what would be the one thing you would really want them to change in the way in which they report some of these issues? I, I would ask for balance, that is what I would ask for, and I would ask for kind of greater representation and not the um, funneling of um, black and ethnic minority people into dominant stereotypes. You know, I think there's this positioning of, you know, black women, uh, black men, you know, ethnic, other ethnic minority people, South Asian people, East Asian people, you know, people from uh, Romani and Travelit backgrounds that is very restrictive and limiting and i think what i would ask for is responsible journalism and i think very often i think what we engage in in the uk is irresponsible journalism that really perpetuates and fulfills you know stereotypes about particular groups of people that are not only harmful but they there is a psychological impact um to those particular systemic um and institutional violences and i think it's really important where possible that the media as a central tenet of how society consumes and makes sense of the world around it um tries to present as accurate a picture as possible that doesn't lend itself to um marginalization victimization or dehumanization particularly of black and ethnic minorities jason thank you very much um, please do submit your questions because coming up in about 10 minutes time, we will start the Q&A section of our event. Uh, use the Q&A box. Um, and obviously, if you like the question that's been placed in the box, you can uh, boost it to get it further up the list. We expect to have way too many questions than we can answer, but we will do our very best. And if you're on social media, use the hashtag UniMentalHealthDay. Rachel. Just longing to jump in there, Jason, because I just think you made such a such a good good points there. Um, I know, uh, for example, I work sometimes with the charity Young Minds, which is very much uh, working with students and young people. And one thing that we've all been discussing is how unnuanced the reporting of young people's mental health is. Um, a lot of the headlines are saying things like, you know, there's a tsunami of mental health problems. Um, you know, there's a tidal wave of mental health problems. Um, it doesn't at all reflect the nuance, which is that actually some young people are fine. Um, as Sai said earlier, you know, sometimes a resilient person can still be resilient in the face of social media. Um, people from uh, different socio and economic backgrounds, and as you say, we know people from ethnic minorities and black people are more vulnerable among young people. So it's a very nuanced picture and the headlines are often very, very misleading. And the problem with that is that the wrong people may get the wrong kind of help, which is while some people definitely need support and help and proper access to CAMS and mental health services, you know, other people, they're, they're, they haven't got mental health problems. They're in danger of being pathologized with mental health problems, which they haven't actually got. So I just wanted to really say how great that whole idea that we need to be balanced, we need to be nuanced and really reflect in detail the kind of research uh, and, and the limits of it. You know, we have very little research about young people, for example. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I agree. We, we don't. And I think um, there's this also there is a perception around young people and mental health, which I think has become hugely damaging. This idea of snowflakes and you know lack of resilience and in my day and 
you know, but I, I think there's a strong argument to make that, you know, post post war, you know, there, there may not have been a generation that's had it harder. You know, if you think about some of the great social deprivation and inequalities that uh, people are facing across the piece and across the intersection, there's a strong argument to suggest. I mean, we've got a circulation of around a million undergraduate students in the UK a year. And, you know, in two years time, those who've gone to university in the academic year 2020, 2021, will be going into the labour market. And based on what Richie Sunak has said, and what we know, and I'm no economist, but we can work this out, you know, roughly speaking, what jobs are going to be for them to go into? And I think that does raise concern, and it will heighten anxiety, it will cause depression for people who are not able to, who are, who are investing huge tens of thousands of pounds in their future, who will not get that gain or reward. And I think to, to label those people and to neutralise their angst of that particular situation ahead of them as being snowflake or not being resilient, I, I, I think it's disappointing. And again, it's, it's irresponsible journalism. And, and that's what it is. It's irresponsible because actually what it's going to suggest is that people are going to feel that they can't speak about these issues for fear of stigmatization and what we'll end up doing is going back to you know yesteryear 10 20 30 years ago where you just didn't talk about mental illness or altered mental state and i don't i think we've come a long way from that and we've managed to move this conversation from the societal and political margins to the center and i think it needs to stay in the center and to do that we need to move away from such language when young people talk about these, you know, valid and leg legitimate concerns. Thank you, Jason. Um, coming back to our headline this evening about the impact that the, the media and the global pandemic has on our mental health. Gary, I wanted to ask you about what the impact of reading and processing masses and masses of negative information can have on somebody's mental health of any age? I know your work is particularly with older people. Yes. So, I mean, there is a huge, massive literature really on, on emotion and, and um, the way we process it. So I've just picked out a few things, really. Um, so research has shown that you don't necessarily have to be present at a disaster uh, for example, to be profoundly affected psychologically. Uh, you know, we're consuming endless streams of traumatic footage uh, and it has a real effect. Um, the material we engage with enters conscious mind, our subconscious mind, it influences our behaviour, our thoughts, our emotions. And there's many potential explanations for why news affects us in such a fundamental way. And one explanation is this idea of what's called negativity bias. Um, in other words, we pay more attention to upsetting on traumatic things that occur around us. We respond more to adverse events. We dwell on unpleasant circumstances more than pleasant ones. We focus our attention more quickly on negative uh, rather than positive information. So the argument is that in the in our dim and distant past, this this type of uh, behavior has been ad advantageous. Um, we know fear motivates in, in the right dose. And, and this translates often into how policies are communicated by governments. You know, again, we can see that recently. Uh, news items also tend to be negative. Um, and then because they're negative, they automatically grab our attention. So some arguments suggest that the news is creating a time of collective pessimism 
um, and this continues to shape people's lives and people's expectations of what the future might hold for them. So studies have shown that individuals who are aware of what makes their life meaningful tend to report lower levels of psychological stress during situations such as the current COVID-19. The argument is that sense of meaningfulness makes us more resilient, more flexible to adjust to some of these existential challenges that are being constantly bombarded with in the news. So actually, what you have found during the pandemic that has been published so far, and what you've seen in previous, uh, say, natural disasters, is that the pandemics offered for many an, an existential turning point that has provided individuals with a sense of growth to reevaluate their life, to kind of reassess what's important to them. Um, so, you know, in the current situation, we're not clear really how mental health will be affected long term. Especially when we revert back to the old normal um, and escape from the new normal of face masks and hand sanitizers, we you know we don't know how people are going to cope when maybe once again we're surrounded by hundreds and thousands of people. It's again an unknown to some extent because we've kind of been pushed into this situation. So I'd really like to end this uh, this you know my answer really by referring to a psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl. Who, who argued that we can cope with the biggest tragedies in life as long as we focus on what's meaningful to us. I think that kind of sums up quite a lot of the literature. Thank you very much, Gary. I'm really interested quickly to know before we move on to our questions and we have a very big list of questions that we're gonna try and, and go through. Let's be really frank, let's be really honest. I don't think the media is going to change. Uh, the media primarily is a business. Newspapers need to sell. Online newspapers need to get clicks to meet their advertisers. Commercial broadcasters need to attract advertisers. They need big numbers. So if the media are not going to change, and that's a very sweeping statement, based on what Gary said, does that mean, for example, Sylvia, I'll come to you, as human beings, we're the ones that need to adapt. So it's not to say no to the media, but it's to be mindful when we consume our media. Would you say that that's a relevant point? I'm really glad you're mentioning that. And thank you for raising this question, because I think as a follow up to what we've just heard, that those, those questions are really difficult. They're very nuanced. However, what we do know I mean, at the end of the day, in my opinion, it's almost an act of activism to really take a stand and to look out, to look after yourself today, to look after your friends, especially the vulnerable ones, regardless of what's the reason why they might feel vulnerable online. I think I agree with what you're saying. Media is not going to change, but being an optimist, generally speaking, as a person, I sometimes wish and wonder what if our expectations from the media would change. What if, and from what we're seeing, where we're heading with Google, where we're heading with Apple, we do see that tech giants start to realize that the general awareness around ethics of advertising, general awareness around the impact of technology on our mental health is growing. So, you know, as users who, who stay on Facebook, who stay on social media, who stay on Google or not, if we're not there, those companies are not going to exist. The media, if we don't buy media papers or if we buy more consciously, then the media will have to change. So in my personal opinion, 
I think we're seeing a, a, a big rise in general awareness and need to keep at it. And those of us who are more resilient need to do the work, need to flag up, need to kind of, you know, research what works, what we expect from media. And those of us who are vulnerable need to take care of themselves as well. So I do think it is going to change. But in the meantime, we need to work towards the change on individual level, on a collective level, on on local level. We see it happening here in Bristol as well. We have some fantastic local papers that offer, I'm thinking about Bristol Cable, that offer alternative versions of, you know, looking at collective media, looking at stories that communities care about, hyper media as well, hyper local media. So there are solutions that we have. And there are big challenges. We've also heard, when was it yesterday or the day before yesterday, that the owners of Daily Mail have recently purchased the, the new scientists here in the UK. So the mainstream media, even within science, um, might change. So how are we going to react to that? So yes, there, there are big challenges, but I think we all just need to engage in the process and, and work towards better landscapes, information landscapes out there. I think possibly one of the most tangible examples of the changing world really would be what Twitter did when they flagged up tweets that they believed to be false or not believe that were false. Sorry. Um, that was a real shift, wasn't it, in seeing that that being flagged and ultimately some accounts being taken down. Thank you so much. Um, let's move on to our questions, shall we? Because we have quite a list. And if we can be um, succinct, if we can, so that we can try and answer as many of the questions that are coming in as possible, you can place your question in the Q&A box. And if you are on Twitter, you can use the hashtag UniMentalHealthDay. So um, I'm going to come to all of you with this first question. I know at the end of the event, we're going to give our top tip for managing our mental health when it comes to the media. But this is a more personal question that's come in from someone who didn't give their name, but it says, what do you do to support your mental health that you think might be helpful for others? Jason, I'm going to come to you first. Um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, Personally speaking, I, I, I mean, ironically, I, I hate social media and I'm, I'm, and I'm not on it and I've never been on it. So I, I don't, um, and that's not to say that it doesn't have fantastic uses. It's just that I, I as a general rule of thumb, I'm not, you know, I, I just, it doesn't, it wouldn't work for me. But I think the most important thing is, um, is, is carving time. I mean, I, I think self-care is really important and to be honest is not something that I do particularly well but I think a lot of the work I do because it's around race and in particular racial inequality and racial trauma one of the things I actually do is when I um, you know when I'm at home I actually try not to look at things to do with race um, as a way of safeguarding myself and I try and do mundane things so I and I say mundane things, as in, you know, for my sins, I really love home and away and neighbours. Now, it's the complete opposite of what I do day in, day out. But I think sometimes there's something really mindless about watching something and not having to think about it or engaging in activities, generally speaking, where you don't have to think about it in a particular way. So the thing that I would always say is like, you know, we all have activities like that. I think it's important to really safeguard your own kind of faculties by ensuring that where possible you're talking to people on a consistent basis um, and we've obviously got this medium of forums we can use to be able to do that and to find kind of communities of comfort 
um, you know, whether they be big or they be small. But I think the most important thing is to kind of find an interest that kind of can really take you away from the rigors of living in in a 21st century, to be honest. And I think it's 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 uniquely different for everybody, to be honest. Oh, no, it's great. And that's why I think people are keen to hear your, your personal tips. Rachel, what would be your personal tip? What do you do um, that, that keeps your mental health in check? Um, so I've got a long history of um, anxiety and depression. And for me, the mornings are always still tricky. Um, we all know that, well, well, I've learned that we have a kind of squirt of cortisol in the morning that actually helps us get up. So we do have a bit of a stress response first thing in the morning. And I think the big learning for me is to sort of reframe that morning dread, that morning fear. Um, so I just think for a moment, who is your main relationship with? You know, is it with your partner or your parent or a child or your boss? Well, actually, the main relationship for all of us is with ourselves. So what I now do, and it's taken me many years to get there, is I spend a little bit of time with myself in the morning and I try and get up in a, in a sort of in a gentler way. I do a bit of meditation, a bit of a breathing exercise just to sort of say hello to any negative thoughts or feelings that come up first thing. And they often do. I'm not good enough or this isn't going to work or whatever negative thoughts. I let them go. Don't dwell on them. And just... I just have a mantra, which is, let's just let me be curious today what the day is going to bring. Let's just be curious. You know, I don't know. I don't know the future. None of us do. Let's just be curious and move away from fear and step into kind of curiosity. So that's how I start my mornings. And since I did that, I find my mental health has been much better. I love that. And I didn't know about the shot of cortisol, but I so agree with how how I start my day can impact the, my mood going forward for the day and yeah that's that's yeah. really important um gary do you have a tip of, of what you do for your own mental health um well i suppose in terms of what we've been talking about i'm, I'm very selective about what i read uh, around what's going on in the world um so that's one thing that i i do try to do but also i um try not very successfully um, to take time out at various points in the day, especially if it's a busy day, you know, um, plum, you know, just even if it's a couple of minutes, just to sort of momentarily reflect on things that are uh, personally meaningful, really, and just just have a little bit of time out once more. It doesn't you know? It doesn't have to be a long time, but it's just allowing you to do that, and then you you do kind of feel a little bit more refreshed. So, um, but I'm not the best person. <laughs> I try, um, yeah that's fine that's fine no it's not about anyone being perfect but all these are really useful um gary coming up i've got a question that's been posed directly for you but i just wanted to go to sylvia for her personal what you do for your mental health i'll be very quick um i echo what rachel said i think for me as a as a, as a new practitioner and therapist it's incredibly important that now with the new guidelines self-care is pretty much mandatory for all of us um, I think it's about listening to myself and I'm, I'm actually an introvert undercover. I was trained to be extroverted. I've studied public speaking and so on, but that, that, that comes with a huge cost. So I, for me, it's getting the balance right between how much time to wait for myself to listen to my feelings. I think mental health is fluid. Some days are good. Some days are bad. You know, some days, some periods are harder than others, some periods are more resilient. And for me, it's about getting 
remembering that there's a point where I need to ask for help and I don't have to struggle on my own if I'm not feeling well. So I guess that's the general kind of listening to myself, knowing myself, being authentic. But when it comes to small tips, I like to connect with other living beings. So whether it's my dog here in the room, whether it's getting a hug from my teen son, or whether it's going out for a walk in nature and grounding myself, I have a menu of things that I can choose from and they tend to work. Lovely. I'm just going to share one of my, I'm going to show you this. It's on my desk. This is my gratitude journal. So I write down something I'm grateful for every day. There might be one day a week where I don't. I had a day last week where I couldn't be grateful for anything. I probably should have just put that I was grateful for getting out of bed. But um, it's a really interesting thing to do. One thing I'm grateful for each day. And when you sit back and look back over your week or your fortnight or your month, you see that that there are so many valuable things happening in your life, even though it may not quite feel like it. So my top tip was a gratitude journal. So, Gary, I said I had a question for you. It's come in from Marie. Marie says, Gary, how do you think COVID has affected people with dementia and their carers? So talking about the impact of, you know, the mental health of carers and, and then also obviously on people who are living with dementia as well. That question from Marie. Um, well, I, I suppose it's a, it's a, the short answer would be incredibly badly, I suppose, because it, it, there's, there's been such um, problems in obviously, you know, people who are self-isolating or not being able to see friends and family. And even when they can see friends and family, it's maybe through a screen, um, which, you know, for, for, for someone who's maybe a friend or a family member, it's it's having not having that close physical contact even, even even if it's just holding hands or something like that it's it's still a way of communicating uh with 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 their loved ones and you know the, the person who has dementia you know I, well you know it it, it, it it's such a you know a challenging situation because often you know the the, the the policies around you know what you should do is constantly changing um they may not be as aware of what is appropriate and what is not appropriate behavior they don't know maybe why their the relatives not visiting um and we do know that it's caused a lot of distress and agitation on top of what would be normally uh, seen in in people who are say in care homes or you know even in their own home so yes it's it's just it's it's caused an untold level of of distress really and uh and i know people personally talking about um you know how maybe someone's deteriorated quite quickly because of that lack of social connection between with others it's so yeah I think it's been, uh, you know, people have done what they could do in, in certain situations. It's been quite varied, but um, it could, you know, if we are faced with a similar situation again, um, then I hope that we start off at a much more um, informed level, I suppose, in terms of maintaining that contact. Well, let's truly hope we never have to face this again, but you, you never, never know. Thank you, Gary. I've had a question from someone that we sort of touched on with Jason a little earlier, um, that someone says, how can we influence the media away from irresponsible journalism? And Jason, when I gave him a magic wand to, to talk to those big media bosses, touched on that. But I wanted to come to you, Rachel, because of your experience of working in the media. Can we influence the media away from irresponsible journalism yes i mean i think that uh 
you know, there are, there are, I mean, I think we mustn't get too negative here. There are examples of responsible journalism. And we all know, you know, Gary was saying he has a very curated feed and he's very careful, you know, who he turns to in terms of research, you know. So I, I think it's it's not true that there aren't responsible sources of journalism. And, and as you said earlier, Emma, you know, um, media outlets are drawn by profits. So, you know, we can put our money where our, where our mouth is, as it were, our heart is. And, and, and support and 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 basically buy media from from people that we trust and support as and and you know not read the tabloids not read the red tops uh, from my own background in 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 newspaper journalism i mean i mean i i find now that i myself write for newspapers about mental health and I, i'm always uh you know trying to reflect the research and reflect the nuance reflect the balance and and there are certain newspapers that want to hear that and then there, there are obviously others that don't and you know we we know who they are so so i think it is possible to 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 effectively in you know keep 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 away from them and keep away from our own worst instincts to be titillated or have those emotions stirred by by media which which don't in the end serve our, our mental health thank you rachel our next question uh, says, and I'll read it directly. Hi, Emma, great to see you. I am VC at UE. Oh, gosh, it's important people. And I lead the University UK mental health work. In a Twitter feed world, I worry about how to deal with Twitter. Do you have any advice? Thank you. I, I am a keen user of Twitter. I, I have been for probably about 10 years, although in recent times, I've fallen a little out of love with it with the increase in trolling and people wading in on conversations where they weren't part of it and I personally have suffered as a result of that I keep my Twitter feed positive upbeat I don't engage in controversy um, I try and be informative and have a balance of information from credible sources and a bit of entertainment and quite a regular amount of dog pictures. So I use Twitter in a positive way where I can, and that seems to help. But I am finding it an increasingly difficult place uh, to be. So I can totally understand why that would be um, a difficult thing to, to manage. But um, I certainly am reducing my use of it and using it in a proactive way rather than in a constant way. And a little bit later on, if we have chance, um, that will come into my my top tip that we're all going to share with you at the end of the event. Thank you for your question. Our next question is, has the fact that older people are more at risk of dying from COVID makes this group more likely to suffer from mental health problems than other groups? I am going to come to you, Gary, because I know that's your area of expertise. So do we think older people have suffered more with their mental health? Is there a way of quantifying that? Um, well, I suppose one of the problems I think that's that we're very um, aware of, it, say, in the, the British Society of Gerontology is the fact there's you know, one of the things that we've seen during the COVID situation is uh, a rise, well, you know, an emphasis really on kind of ageist types of, of assumptions and beliefs. And, you know, initially, you know, you know uh, we talked about isolating people over a certain age, um, which, you know, for the fact that they're vulnerable. So there's all issues around, you know, the idea that you have to, you're, you're, you're definitely vulnerable if you're at a certain age and all of these types of things. So there is, there is um, an issue around, you know, we know there's stigmas around mental health, but you also know there's, there's, 
ageism as well at play and um you know so it, one of the worries i suppose is that older adults have felt a little bit left to their own devices isolated from the community maybe seen as as, as something different um so it's to some extent you know we've seen a widening of the gap between inequalities um not in terms not only in just in terms of cultures but also in terms of age groups as well so i think um that that is something that you know we do need to kind of consider again um and you know the impact of that is 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 going to be coming out i suppose when, with um, as we get more and more studies published but yes i'd imagine the, the 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 sort of the senses of being isolated and lonely is to some extent been ex exacerbated by the current situation thank you very much gary our next question is from someone who says thank you for sharing tips such as watching the news in moderation do you have any other recommendations of small changes we can make to switch off um, Jason, I wanted to ask you, because you said that you didn't really use social media, but how do you consume your news? Do you do it in small batches or do you not? How, what, what do you do personally? Well, it's quite ironic. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how, how and why, but I'm quite obsessed with the news, but not mainly due to kind of uh, COVID related matters, but just due to having an understanding of current affairs. So I was always brought up with the news being on in my house. Like, um, and if it wasn't like Sky News on 24 hour run, then it was BBC News or CNN. So my actual interest in watching the news is just so I have an understanding of current affairs, which lends itself well to being an educator. So that was, that's really the premise for, for, for watching it. And I guess the, the kind of way that I consume news really is through um, sometimes newspapers, there's a variance of ways in which I do it, but I'd say the most common thing I would do is I'd watch the news probably once a day. Uh, and, it, you know, the probably biggest choice I have in a day is maybe, is it going to be BBC 10 o'clock news or ITV 10 o'clock news? And kind of that's where I, I choose to go with that. And I kind of make a deliberate choice to kind of consume the news once a day um, and really kind of keep it to that and take the information that I think is useful and then the information I don't think is so useful kind of been that, particularly when it's around, when it lends itself to, as I said, presenting particular groups in a way that I don't think is particularly positive nor helpful. I'm just going to thank you, Jason. A little follow up question from Catherine, which is along the similar lines. Catherine says, is there an optimum amount of time or frequency for checking the news so that we're not satisfying our worrying mind but not feeding it by over-engaging with the media. Sylvia, is there an optimum amount of time or frequency or, or is it just personal choice? I'm not entirely sure if there's a study as such. I know there's a difference between how we, how quickly we speak and how quickly we read. And obviously we, we think much faster than the way we speak. So there's a lot of scope to overthink things when we digest news. That speed is twice or three times as much, if I remember correctly, but please don't quote me on that. What I think it's important to remember that it is sadly individual, so we all need to figure this out. Uh, but it also changes over time. So uh, sometimes we might feel more resilient and sometimes we might feel a little bit less so. Um, so I think it's really important to, to develop the habit of reflection, of whatever you read, wherever you read it, or whether you hear it from the neighbor to, to really check in with yourself. How, how does that make me feel? 
What's going on for me? What's my initial reaction? Am I ruminating? Shall I just distract myself and have strategies in place? And if you do have strategies in place, I oftentimes recommend doing the opposite of what we're naturally falling into to work with our natural biases. We might have a negative reaction, so let's just cheer ourselves up. And I know these are very simple things to do, but um, just really reflect and watch your feelings because they are fleeting and we can move on. So, you know, if you have a time, let me give you my example where we had close family members in the family who were going through the COVID phase, both of them. I couldn't even read the news. I couldn't talk to the neighbors about news and I just switched it off for that period of time and then caught up with the news afterwards because I was aware of the fact that it, it is upsetting for me. It could be upsetting and I can give myself a few weeks to just to just to just focus on the family and uh, and my feelings. So I think it is fluid and it is very individual. Thank you very much. Our next question. It says life throws events we need to deal with. Should we be educating individuals with the tools and processes to deal with them rather than trying to avoid them? Uh, Rachel, in your work and, and supporting people um, with mental health and being a mental health campaigner, that's a really interesting question about us taking responsibility to develop tools in which we we deal with what life throws at us rather than just sitting there and waiting for it to happen where, where do you feel how do you feel about this should we be developing and educating people to be more resilient maybe well i mean you know you're preaching to the converted i mean of course we should be developing tools of course people should be learning about this stuff in school it should be part of the curriculum you know when you're studying romeo and juliet you should be under that could lead to discussion about suicide we need to understand some of the things we've been talking about our stress response our, our negative bias all these basics of psychology and how our brain works and the strategies to look after ourselves absolutely we should be doing this and actually we know that the phrase i use a lot you know what we resist persists so when we try and shut these things down and we don't acknowledge them and um, they get worse so um people say that for example women often find it very difficult to process anger you know some people say depression is anger turned in equally men are sometimes uh, they, they they don't want to appear vulnerable um, and in both uh, ways of not embracing and acknowledging and understanding our feelings and our thoughts uh, we can lead to much worse outcomes and that and that was the case for me you know i i i, I absolutely didn't want to really look very hard or have this kind of relationship with myself it was it was too scary and I sort of learned to my cost the hard way so um, I would just urge anybody out there you know to to um, you know pick up these tools the mindfulness some of the nutritional approaches um, some of the psychological approaches and you know uh, that there's some great books out there and I think the thing is you don't have to do everything at once you know find what 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 you can do and you can maintain and build from there because i think sometimes you know people overwhelm themselves with all these things they should be doing and then can't manage to complete them okay our next oh sorry sylvia before i move on to the next question what did you want to say i just wanted to add a little point from something we do we do here at bristol uh, in bristol at off the record is just, I completely echo what Rachel was saying, and I, I actually, we do start seeing primary schools in some countries across the continent already teaching young people how to read misinformation and how to notice it, you know, the, and how that impacts our mental health, which is fantastic. 
I'd just like to remind some of the students of there's there's sometimes a risk that we tend to think if some if something is individual is our fault. What we tend to say at Off the Record and Versus, our, our mental health is a very natural reaction to what's going on. So sometimes, no matter what tools we're going to use, it's really important to ask for help, to, to know what your boundaries of resilience are. If you're running low on batteries, just reach out to your closest friends, reach out to all the available helplines and support locally. Just remember that, that there is help out there and you don't have to go through all of this on your own. Um, just wanted to add it to the mix. Thank you. We've had um, a comment, not a question, in from Zoe that I wanted to read to you all. Zoe says, I love the honesty from the panel, how they are also a work in progress when it comes to maintaining and improving their mental health. Uh, Zoe says, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Zoe. This question is from Jonathan. Jonathan says, we are urged to stay within our bubbles and yet depressed people often feel they are in a bubble. How influential is public language on our health? Jason, I'm going to come to you because we talked earlier about the way the media, you know, doesn't have enough balance um, with regards to minority communities. But the use of language in the media and actually amongst ourselves as human beings as well can have such an influence on our mental health. Yeah, I agree, Emma. And I think, you know, I think language, lexicon, discourse, whatever you want to call it, it's very interesting in terms of how we frame and position people in society. And I think one of the most important things is care, you know, care in terms of how we use language. And that absence of care does create places of hostility. And I think where, you know, we have people who will be experiencing, you know, um, altered mental states, you know, or maybe experiencing psychological disturbance or you know depression anxiety i think in terms of the language we use even the descriptors i've used to describe that you know are there ways we can describe this which can be more inclusive more representative of um the kind of minutiae in, in detail recognizing that actually um the more we make this part of our common discourses and our common kind of lexicon in terms of our language the more we normalize this and i think that's that's the problem there isn't ordinarily i hate the word normal but there needs to be a normalization of this within our language where it becomes comfortable for us to talk about mental health in a way that recognizes this without it being you know disadvantaging or being seen as something that is you know again a disadvantage and i, th I think that is hugely important because we are kind of, I think, I think, you know, there's going to be a significant weighting placed on the NHS and probably private mental health services. And I think we're going to see that in the, in, in the wake or the kind of demise, for want of a better term, of the pandemic. And I think it's important that we think about the language that we're using. And I think it's important for employers to be cognizant of some of this language as well, because I think a lot of, um, people who end up having you know who suffer from mental illness in many respects one of the big aspects to that is work-life balance and i think as employers we need to be thinking about also what we can do to ensure that people we're trying to maintain and nourish people's mental health as much as possible thank you jason um rachel I'll be with you in just a second i just wanted to say from my former media hat on 
how one of the biggest things that um, I've, one of the biggest challenges I find is the misleading use of headlines um, when it comes to the language used in headlines. It's, it's happened for years, but we live in such a fast paced world now. So many people are reading just the headline and they're not bothering to read the article. And, and particularly we see this in social media. The headline is made as grabbing and as sensational and possibly divisive as it possibly can be. Um, and the recent example of that was when the it was announced that the 40 to 49 age bracket would be the next cohort to receive their COVID vaccination. And immediately, a mass of people, but what about the 50s? What about the, you've forgotten the 50s? Well, if they had read the article, um, the 50 cohort had already been listed. This was the next one to be announced by the government. But what it created was this anxiety and this divisiveness and this what about me sense of, you know, panic just because of a, of a headline that was designed to do exactly that get people to click, get people to like, get people to share an angry emoji. So public language, both how we talk to each other and indeed how the media use, has such an influence. Whether we will ever be able to change the media, I, I, I feel that that's going to be a challenge, but I am open-minded. But the way we talk to each other as well is really important. Rachel, what did you want to say? Well, just very quickly on language, I, yeah, I really take your point about headlines and I, I, that's such a good point. Um, I'd say the language we talk to ourselves, this idea of our relationship with ourselves. And you, you mentioned that lovely thing of a gratitude notebook earlier. Um, I, I find that I need very gentle language to make uh, good, you know, to, to actually help my mental health. I actually use the word appreciation. I found when I did a gratitude notebook, it felt a bit judgmental and I didn't always feel grateful. Um, whereas I found that appreciation was a gentler word. And, and equally with some of the workshops, and I, you know, people talk about exercise. Of course, we all know exercise is good for our mental health. If you're not feeling great, sometimes a very gentle word like movement can be a much gentler language, use of language and can be much more effective in people looking after themselves. Thank you, Rachel. We have about five minutes left of our questions, so we're going to do as many as we can. Gary. Yeah, I just wanted to just pick up a couple of things about, well, one thing about words is the thing that really was a BMI bonnet, I think was early on was the the, the con constant use of the phrase social distance. And, and I think, you know, a lot of people have now been talking about, you know, one word, physical distance is much more appropriate than social distance because we know about the isolation element. So it's it serves the purpose much better. And there's also images around, um, you know, we talked about older adults earlier is the images and i'm talking about the ageism element again so the the idea that most of the images you see in the press is is usually of an older adult looking vulnerable or in some stage of decline or worse still there seems to be an obsession with wrinkly hands and i know there's a a whole um almost like a sub, sub um, genre within gerontology about um anti-wrinkly hands because it's, it's what you really need is positive and age-appropriate images of older adults not constantly feeding a stereotype that they're um, vulnerable so I just wanted to uh, just add those couple of points Thank in. I, I promise I pledge I pledge to switch my language to physical distancing because I love that I hadn't even considered the impact of the use of the word social because but physical distancing I, I make that pledge to you Gary I shall be doing that from tomorrow <laughs> okay 
Um, this is a question from Joy. Joy says, how or what can I do or say with colleagues, friends and family who are struggling and don't want to talk about how they are feeling? And thank you, Joy, because that's that's a very it's, it's a question that I think lots and lots of people would would like to, to get some advice on because many of us have found ourselves in that situation. Sylvia. The reason why I raised my hand is because I volunteer for Cruise, the bereavement uh, support. And, and when it comes to normalising language, I think the, the easiest thing is to, to just be really honest, but be as neutral as possible. In counselling, we have this fantastic question that opens up a lot very safely is what's going on in this silence? What else is there? Because we've spent tonight talking a lot about news, but I guess there's also the other side, you know, what's not mentioned when we suffer, when we struggle, when we're underrepresented or targeted even, or we feel very unwell, we don't feel safe enough to speak up. So that means that sometimes we just need to sit with the silence, get used to the uncomfortable feeling of the silence. Sometimes it helps to ask, should I just make you a cup of tea with that, with that help? You know, just really, really sit with the uncomfortable and be... Don't try to save people, but actually just listen to what's going on for them without making assumptions. And don't be scared to ask the question. It's better to ask the question than not. In my personal experience, people who suffer really do appreciate at least asking if, if, if we do ask the question. That is a wonderful piece of advice. Thank you so much. Um, just from you, Rachel, with that, particularly obviously with your work um, as a mental health campaigner, what can people do or say to anyone who's struggling but doesn't want to talk? So working with um, SANE and Rethink Mental Illness, one of the things we do is if you are suffering from a mental illness, you will almost certainly have some kind of physical symptom. So whether that's insomnia, which is one of mine, or uh, whether that's um, lack of appetite, or um, uh, there'll, there'll be some physical aspect of your mental health condition. And because we still do have some stigma around, uh, often the very best way to start that conversation is to go in on the physical symptom as opposed to a psychological one. So less about your low mood or you're not enjoying things as you normally do, but something like, um, you know, did you sleep well last night? or um how, how you know uh, how's your appetite and and that's very neutral it, it doesn't it, it it's kind of easy for people and it, and it starts a conversation and it's less stigmatized thank you rachel and thank you to everyone that has submitted questions to the panel uh, this evening we've got through as many as we possibly can and in a moment each of our panel guests are going to give us their one top tip to how you manage the impact on your mental health of the times that we are living through at the moment so i'm looking forward to that in in just a moment so thank you to everyone who's joined us for the event we really do hope that it has been useful and that it has been um, something that you has felt has made a, a change for you because we would really like to think that and obviously uni mental health day is a day of awareness but uni mental health and mental health amongst our students and our university community is important all year round this is something we should be focusing on in every aspect of the work and the study and the socializing that we do and we can all play a part in that 
So I would like to say thank you to the University of the West of England for hosting this event. Thank you to our audience and of course, our panelists as well. So I am looking for your one top tip of how people can cope and manage their mental health uh, in a global pandemic, living in the kind of world that we live in. Um, I think these are going to be really useful for people to take away. These are their tips to take away. So, Gary, I'm coming to you first. Um, okay, so I think it's, you know, it's important to stay informed with what's going on in the world. And But I, I follow the recommendation. I think it's the World Health Organization who recommends focusing on finding out about the practical steps you can help, you know, to protect yourself and loved ones. And once you've done that, switch it off, um, to use the title of, the, of the, this, this webinar. And you, you don't have to deny negative information. You just need to create boundaries to protect your mental health. Creating boundaries. Thank you so much, Gary. Jason, what would be your one top tip? Thank you, Emma. Um, I, I would concur a lot with what Gary said, to be honest. I, I think the one thing I would say is probably everything in moderation. Um, I, I do think that as much as as, as much positive as social media can do, I, I do think it's had a huge impact on a lot of people's mental health. So maybe there may be, you know, a, a case for doing that in moderation and, and all things and really just trying to be around as much as possible, you know, good people um, and take inspiration in the mundane. I think sometimes it's the very simple things that you can take inspiration from in life. And sometimes I think that is really overlooked sometimes in life as we all kind of gravitate to sometimes maybe the big things yeah that's a really useful tip and i think actually that's one of the things the pandemic has allowed us to appreciate that the day-to-day -day stuff you know spending how we would have never spent this much time in our homes you know we invest a lot of time and money in our homes we should spend time in them so yeah i, I really i really i really acknowledge that so we've got creating boundaries we've got moderation in all aspects of your life. Rachel, your one top tip, please, for our audience. Well, I think when I look back at my own story of, of severe anxiety and depression, one of the things that I've learned is that we've only really got to deal with the, with the here and now, the current moment. That's all life is. It's a series of these little moments. And when you're very worried, you're often in the future. So, you know, like now in the pandemic, ah, panic, panic, you know, I'll never have a job. Um, I won't get my degree, whatever, my, my grand's gonna die. So we were in the future or we're regretting the past, like, oh God, why, why have I chosen to do this? And I should have chosen to be an engineer or a doctor where I could have got a job. We're regretting things, but what we're not is in, is in the moment. And actually that's all we've got to be is in the moment. And the best way for me of being and accepting and not just tolerating, but finding the present moment okay is to use some of the breathing exercises. Think about this for a moment. You can't breathe in the past. You can't breathe in the future. You can only breathe now. Breathing is the best way to calm down, to relax in through the nose. That's where the little hairs are, stops the bugs anyway out through the mouth and to trigger the relaxation response, the out breath is a bit longer than the in breath. That means that we're okay, we can manage, we're in the moment and it's all gonna be okay. 
I love that. You can't breathe in the past. You can't breathe in the future. So breathe in. The I love that. I love I'm taking that tip away. OK, and Sylvia, your tip. These are wonderful tips. So I don't know if I can add to it. Mine is going to be probably a little bit more technical. Um, I am thinking about two different tips. I'm thinking about two different states that people might be in when they're listening to it. So what I would say is if you're feeling vulnerable, please consider the fact that when we feel vulnerable, we tend to listen to our biases. We need to trust misinformation. We, we, we tend to believe things that are not necessarily healthy for us. And we struggle doing things that make us feel better. So if you're feeling vulnerable, ask for help and remember that you're not alone. Just please reach out. If you're feeling resilient, if you're a student especially, you know, in, in our academic writing, we apply critical thinking on a daily basis. So please curate your sources, check your sources, read, spend, you can share less, but read the articles properly before you share them and pass them on. And the word curation sums up the idea of reading and checking your sources. There are a lot of tools available for that as well or following trusted journalists that you might even know in person, and then really thinking about what possibly sharing that article can do to your networks and to people in your community that might be feeling vulnerable and, and a little bit more sensitive to that content at the moment. So ask for help if you need it and take responsibility for what you're sharing and, and curate it sensibly with a lot of critical thinking. Excellent. Thank you so much. And um, for me, um, I this has had a real impact on me in recent weeks and months since leaving my full time job in the media. I don't feel I have to be so connected, um, but I have discovered the concept of doom scrolling. Now, doom scrolling is where you it mainly occurs in social media, but can occur on a news page or whatever, where you find yourself reading something negative and then you scroll down and there's something else negative and then you just you just scroll and it becomes a sea of doom and it and it can have an impact on your mood and your mental health that's massive so be mindful of doom scrolling don't allow yourself to do it i found i was doing it every morning when i woke up and it was setting the mood for my day so i now don't do that in the morning and one final thing just because it's worked for me and my friends during the pandemic. If you're not sure if someone is really being honest with you about how they feel, ask them how they feel out of 10. It works wonders. Ask your friends and family, how are you feeling today out of 10? It will give you just an understanding and an insight into who might need you to sit with them and make them a cup of tea. Thank you so much for being with us for this event. I do hope you found it useful. My grateful thanks to Sylvia Corsack, Rachel Kelly, Gary Christopher and Jason Arde and the University of the West of England for allowing us to have this panel discussion. Stay safe, uh, stay well, look out for each other and, um, and thank you. For more information about UE Bristol's commitment to mental health and wellbeing, visit uwe.ac.uk slash about slash values vision strategy slash mental health and wellbeing.